AI has that same um, opportunity where just release it, teach everyone, educate everyone on what it really can do, and then release it to the wilds and say, who comes up with the best idea, you get rewarded. And of course, companies and industries will be able to take advantage. And so I think the folks who will win will be the folks who say, this is not the boogeyman. This is something that can really help you do things better. Well, hello. I am so glad to have all of these wonderful people here today. We have executives from the whole Northeast region of the United States. And uh, my name is Jeff Lackey. I'm host of the show, Growing Your Business with People, a podcast dedicated to business leaders all over the world who want to grow their business with their biggest and most important investment, people. So today we have... Uh, the best of the best here on Earth. I cannot wait. And what we're going to talk to all of you about, and we're going to show on the on the video an image along with your title and your a description about each one of you so that we don't have to take four hours doing introductions so with this huge casting crew. Uh, but what we'd like to do is talk to you about two topics that this, this group picked. And you all picked generative AI, as well as the, 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 the whole idea of a workforce that now is not necessarily local. It's not, it's not centralized. It's a decentralized workforce. So those are the two topics. We felt as though these are the two topics that are most on business leaders' minds uh, as we considered what we were facing. So I did some research. And I found a, an article by Bernard Parm, and he took he writes this article. It's called the the eight biggest future of work trends in 2024. And I said that is absolutely perfect for this. So uh, so I thought I'd tee it up this whole uh, with a little preamble. I don't normally do this, but this allows us to kick off the discussion. I'm going to read first from uh, from the article. And then I'm going to do a little bit of research, and then we will start a discussion. So we'll take it from there. So uh, Bernard writes, this is probably the big one. There's a popular line of thought today that AI won't replace jobs, but people who can use AI will replace people who cannot. Generative AI tools are evolving to a point where they offer solutions that can increase efficiency in just about any task or line of work. But remember, a big part of becoming a proficient AI augmented worker is understanding its limitations and knowing where you still need to apply things like human creativity, compassion, and innovation. So some of my research came out of, I, I did some, uh, I actually used ChatGPT. <laughs> so uh, generative AI is expected to significantly improve job efficiency and productivity. According to McKinsey, generative AI could automate up to 30% of hours currently worked in the U.S. economy by 2030. Now, that isn't a stunning statistic. I don't know what it is. But this actually is enhancing ways professionals work rather than eliminating jobs. Well, I can't imagine that it won't eliminate jobs, but I do see it as an augmentation. BCG also highlights that Gen AI augmentation can deliver value in various ways, 
such as faster feature delivery for technology, as well as financial savings. But it requires a strategic implementation journey to unlock the value. Deloitte emphasizes the importance of human skills, like emotional intelligence, complex problem solving, which are challenging for machines to actually execute. MIT Sloan's uh, reports that Gen AI can improve a highly skilled worker's performance by as much as 40% compared to those who don't use it. So let's begin with question number one. Given our discussion is really about growing our business with people, I wonder how each of you see generative AI augmentation improving two things, employee productivity, but also the employee experience. Let me get your class. Who's going to be the brave first soul to, uh, to talk here? <laughs> Actually, uh, Jeff, I don't want to start even. I think uh, companies need to figure out if they want to be an early adopter or a fast follower, right? So, you know, and I think it's going to be a play on productivity mostly out of the gate. And companies that really need to be more efficient, I think, are going to be pushed to take the risk to be the early adopters. And I think ones that, you know, really want to improve customer service or employee engagement and productivity improvements may not be the top thing on the list. I think they're going to be more of a fast follower. And, you know, I think this has to play out. I think that you've got a lot of these statistics you're talking about. But, you know, and I do think a lot of that will come true. I also think that the workforce will adopt and look and improve skills to migrate to more value-added human human touch type of roles. Um, so I don't know if it's gonna eliminate a bunch of roles. I think there might be a job shift. So what I'm hearing from you, Mark, is that actually the human might come back into, uh, into human resources, right? If, you, if you're able to automate some of the, all of the burdensome you know, tasks that are out there, and then allow people to actually focus in on the human side of things and allow leaders to spend more time leading rather than doing, you know, you know tasks that, uh, that have little or no value. You know, at, at my prior company, which many of you share, we had this thought about everybody working to the top of their license, right? So to the extent that improvements in technology can relieve the burden of things that people don't need to do. It will allow people then to do the things that make the customer experience, make the employee experience that much richer because it will be less repetitive tasks. It will be less, fewer tasks that don't require any real judgment. And it will be more tasks that require empathy, that require uh, the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and the ability to give the personal touch which ultimately strengthens the, biz- the business argument, right? Because then you have that real value add that a machine just can't replicate. So that's how I see it working, that if we can live with it through the scaling up, which will probably feel like we're wearing somebody else's clothes for a while, it won't feel particularly good, like it did back in the old days when we moved in contact centers, right, to tier zero support from people, now we take that for granted, but when we first did it, it, it didn't feel quite right. And I think AI generated properly and applied properly can be done for the good. My big fear is will the government 
or the tech companies um, keep up with the need to ring fence it in a way that it's not misused. No, that's a good point. So, uh, you know, it, it could be used for good. It could be used to help propel us into a place that allows us to to work to the top of the license. Yeah. But there's also some real risks that we have to help the chain. Other thoughts, so Sharon and then uh, Ron. So when I actually, the two comments, so when I think about what Marcos was saying, certain uh, organizations are going to be pushed to, to move faster toward AI because of pain points. And so when I think about the labor market, especially with highly skilled folks that are graduate level healthcare providers, for example, um, I think we're going to move faster, not because we want to, but because we have a pain point and we're looking for good solutions. And then I'll take Lisa's comment. So practice at the top of the license, it's a very common term in the healthcare world. But you, we have highly skilled folks that have a training and a degree. And if you can remove administrative tasks, such as medical record documentation or you know, documenting a history intake of different measurements, that can be very impactful. And it allows both the provider to do what they love to do, which is see patients and not do administrative tasks. And more importantly, as we all know, there is a decrease in the number of folks entering the healthcare profession and or that have exited. And so we've got a problem in society around these highly skilled, licensed folks being there to really have the level of of cognitive abilities and time to spend with patients. So I see AI as a great enabler for that kind of a situation. So it could actually unlock a, a, a provider's ability to spend more time with their patients because they're not having to do all this documentation that otherwise they, you know, I, I think about the fact that I have fireflies.ai as my app that reports all my notes for everything. You know, uh, see the many uh, fellow board members are, are, are familiar with the, the Firefly showing up on my on all my meetings and taking all my notes. But it is a summary of everything. If you think about that, if a if a doctor could have that taking all the notes and then populating all the relevant fields, and then all they have to do is spend three minutes checking to make sure that those that that was done correctly. What a vast versus taking forty five minutes to fill out paperwork. That could be huge. It's a trifecta. It's good for the providers. It's good for the patients. And it's good for the business. It's great. Thank you very much, Sharon. Yeah, I was just uh, thinking about a conversation. Mark and I were actually part of it um, with fellow heads of HR about a month ago. And uh, in leading that, kind of moderating that discussion, I came upon a couple, I think, interesting facts. First of all, uh, a year ago, Thanksgiving, was the first time that ChatGPT exploded on the scene from OpenAI in January of this year uh, was when the Wall Street Journal first wrote about ChatGPT. So it has literally just come upon us, and many of us represent uh, large companies with a lot of resources, but for many companies, they're just figuring it out. And it's a pretty scary thing um, to have to think about how to optimize the power of AI, but how to minimize the risks associated with potential bias and cyber threats and protection of uh, personal information, PII, and so forth. So there's a lot to figure out, especially in the healthcare industry, I think. For sure. 
For sure. Yeah, there's a lot to figure out, but but to your point, it just exploded. I mean, think about it. The Wall Street Journal did not talk about it until January of this year. Uh-huh. But it feels that we've had a like 20 years with ChatGPT already. Yeah, I mean, as we sat amongst fellow leaders in our organizations planning out priorities for 2023 in the fall of last year, this was not a discussion. Look where we sit today talking about the opportunities and the threats. That's true. Amanda. So I was thinking about this more as we as we redefine. I think we're going to end up having to redefine what does productivity mean. There are going to be a suite of positions in all of our organizations, as Ron said, right, and it has been said, that productivity will be redefined by the administrative tasks no longer being needed, the rote work, which yes. is wonderful. But then when we think about the hidden biases, that becomes a higher level order of tasks. And we have to be really careful to recognize that employees and humans and the human-centric philosophy are going to still be needed, right, to make sure we safeguard against those risks, the risks of biases that we know exist today, but then the ones we don't know, right? As we think about information security, as we think about in our world of human resources, all of the different biases that come up every day and the employee experience. So I think two things are going to emerge. How do we redefine productivity of tasks? How do we redefine the suite of biases that we really need to safeguard that yeah. need to remain human centric? So I'll offer that as part of wow. what I'm going next. Okay, that's a that's a huge pivot because <laughs> I think uh, because what you just touched on is something that is explosive. This is the fact that you know humans have bias. We know that we have bias. We're actually uncomfortably comfortable with our bias, <laughs> yeah. right? And now we're talking about potentially systematizing through a, a software or program bias through programmers who, or, or developers who are creating a, a program that may create systematic bias at a whole different level. And we're like, what does that mean? So I'd love to get, you know, let's, let's take out that conversation. Let's see what that goes. Okay, Adriana and then Lauren. And Amanda and I were... <laughs> talking about this earlier in that, you know, as you're thinking about the the talent pipeline that will be employed by these corporations that will be on the back end sort of creating and generating and feeding the systems, um, thinking about what their curriculum or curricula looks like at the college or university level where we're finding in the industry that I'm in um, the importance of having, let's say, um, computer science uh, majors integrated within a humanities program so that if you're building solutions to support humanity and the needs for humanity, what does that mean for these computer scientists to have a perspective based on human-centric needs, right? So that the technical skill doesn't always supersede their ability to connect with colleagues across different departments to ensure that it's a more comprehensive approach to the AI solution that's created. Yeah, that's a great point because what you just touched on is the things that AI, a computer program can't, in this day and age, can't do. It doesn't have compassion. It doesn't have creativity. It does not have innovation by itself. But it could augment those things or accelerate those things. But 
but you know, potentially in what context, right? What is the context that we're thinking about it doing it? How does it, I mean, I don't know. If you ever raise your hand, I'd love to hear. How many of you have actually used ChatGPT? Okay. How many of you have actually uh, used some sort of a ChatGPT type option to create a visual image? Yes. Yeah, that for okay. sure. Where do you have it? Amongst even us, we've only, we've only touched the tip of the tip that is where most of us touch the text portion, yeah. but we haven't actually touched the, uh, the, I actually tried to make it, uh, do they, uh, <laughs> A, an image of me as a uh, a senior photo. I had really funky hair, <laughs> but it's it's hysterical, right? But but at the same time, I didn't have to take any time except to put a bunch of images of myself and then say create a senior fo- photo of me. And that gave me like 40 images to pick from. And I'm like, actually, even though it was awful, it was a little fun <laughs> to look at all these versions of me at 18 years old again. But, you know, that might have been a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that. So I love, uh, love Amanda and uh, Ajana, mm-hmm. where you guys have taken it. Any other thoughts on on the on the downside. Oh, my bad. That's your hand raised. I was going to Lori as well. Oh, Lori is next. I'm sorry. You're right. Lori was next. Yes. I was going to talk about the, you know, the personalization and where the human-centric element comes in because with these outputs, you will still need a human to arbitrate and to moderate and to review the outputs of whatever generative AI is, is producing. Also, um, you know, part of what we know from, you know, other innovations is that, you know, the integrity of the data that's input, okay, May, making sure that it's not, the inputs are not disinformation, that it's not um, information that is subject to poor governance standards and privacy and other violations, but ensuring that the, um, the data that um, that we're looking at, that we're synthesizing, that we are perfecting, actually is credible data. Yeah, yeah but with Wikipedia, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. when you first Wikipedia first came out the on the on the you know <coughs> people would be like, oh yeah, go to Wikipedia for anything, and then you're like, really discovered this depends on how well researched and how well the yeah. authority that actually said <laughs> so that the quality of that data really depended on on who put into that. So. Yeah, in the communications industry, um, there's a lot of storm and drama about, you know, is this going to replace communications jobs? But um, the thought is that although a lot of, you know, boilerplate copy can be created on just about anything, what it's missing is the human experience and the personal experience and someone actually relating something um, authentic and dynamic that happened to him or her or whomever, but that's where um, AI will never be able to replace the the human experience. Okay, if you have a question, Keith, you want to chat? So I think what that reminds us is the the question of diligence, as we talk about how new this is, the framework for 
it wasn't in your planning meeting a year ago, and yet everybody you talk to says they're using AI now. Yeah. So what are they? But it probably wasn't in their planning meeting yeah. a year ago either. So what are we doing as consumers of it to evaluate it the proper way? How do we think about the framework for how do you know that they have bias in it or not? What, um, you know, what criteria do you use to kind of pick the stuff um, on your way to getting results? And that's where most companies are starting is the need for a policy, you know, having some degree of guardrails around it. And honestly, my organization's first response from a CIO perspective was lock it down. <laughs> it was so new again, it exploded on the scene, and it was kind of scary from a cyber perspective and protecting, you know, information that we wouldn't want to otherwise share with competitors from a consumer product perspective. So, yeah, the, the first response was shut it down. But we need to favor the optimization of AI and how it can provide uh, opportunity to our employees without sacrificing the human element. So as a leadership team, we've spent a lot of time developing our policy um, so that we can better embrace the technology. I mean, we can all remember, I think, when the Internet first was introduced in our workspaces, and I don't know, my organization isn't earlier career professional, I had to get senior vice president approval, you know, to consider, you know, being able to get on the internet, which seems so ridiculous. And we can think fast forward how that might apply to AI. Well, you mentioned the human centric, and I think implementation a lot of times is all about what's the value that I'm getting as a company. I think it's a scary thing, this AI stuff to the worker. Because all you hear about is efficiency, and that's like cohort for you're going to have layoffs and you're going to cut down the workforce. But the reality is you're going to have to really think about change management and selling this to your workforce to have effective implementation. So we're not top of your license is a great sell. We want to set the infrastructure for you. We want to set the baseline for you. And then your creativity that really is the differentiator is what you're able to focus on instead of we all have had to put together reports or presentations and it's like the background, the appendix information, it kills you with time. And then the little creativity part that you're really going to sell for the executive summary, you never get enough time to make sure that's right. And so you're really going to have to sell to your employees that this is, you're not, you're not instituting your replacement. You're not putting in place Skynet from the Terminator. What you're putting in place is something that's going to allow you to work on things that you're really interested really creative about and maybe the things that made you excited to go into this role in the first place. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a really important point because we, we don't do that enough. And the way to do that is you take something that you, you show them. So we worked with Revenue Cycle and we used AI enabled robots to do payment posting. Mm-hmm. And so people were, and so you can see 80% of the work can be done by the robot and 20% of the work can't be. And that's actually the more interesting work. And so you take something like that that's not threatening and you use it as a very concrete example to show or illustrate what you were just saying. And it's tangible and people get it. And then that paves the way for at least more curiosity. But I think your point earlier about those of us who remember what it was like when email was introduced, yeah. right? And when internet access from the work computer was introduced, there was a lot of fear that, you know, there was going to be 
lots of security violations, that people were going to be, you know, relaxing on the job, that there, there, there was yeah, a whole crazy. list of, of things that didn't materialize. But the, the way I think the reason that they didn't materialize is because the wiser company said, all right, let's do this slowly, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, do, let's do a little bit of a time. Let's sell it first yes. mm-hmm. in, in certain ways before we, we go all out. It, it seems to me reminding people who perhaps may not remember those big sea changes in technology, reminding what it was like to live with it. I mean, yeah. it's a value for some of us older people, right? Yeah. We have memories. Absolutely. To remind people what it was like and have that guide how we introduce these things would be immensely valuable because, you know, you can't fear change. You have right. to embrace change, but you have to manage the change and not let the change manage you. So I guess one thread that I'd like to add here in the spirit of um, talking about governance and policy and responsibility is I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the topic of digital equity and digital inclusion, right? And so, as we all know, when we talk about that digital equity piece, that there are so many folks from historically, you know, underserved and under-resourced communities that have not had the access to the conversations or to the technology to either be contributors or to even understand You know, no one's demystified for them what currently exists. So as we're stepping into this, you know, yet another era, I think we and this community and the employer community has a responsibility to be mindful of how much of a divide will continue to be created as we continue to advance with this technology, we'll embrace it to whatever scale. But what does that mean for communities that have often continue to be overlooked and not introduced into the conversation in a way that there will be benefit (coughs) to them as they step into the workforce or they get displaced from their current roles that might not be in professional settings, but they're looking for that career ladder to step into these spaces, but they have no idea, you know, what that looks like. You you get the nail on the head, I think it talks about specifically says here in that article. People who can use AI will replace people who cannot. So the question is, if you cannot, you know, where are you left? And so, Amanda. Well, I mean, to just capitalize on that point, I think we've got to think about the imperative around governance of skills development on a national scale, right? I mean, the World Economic Forum has been eyeing this for probably the past 10 years now around a skills divide that is inevitable. Whether it's through underrepresented groups or through skills of jobs that will be completely eliminated. So the advent of AI is not going to be the enemy of that, right? right? It's going to be the outcome. And if we can actually augment, right, the skills development, the learning and development that all of us know we're strapped for in resources, um, if we can find a way to augment that, we can probably solve for two global initiatives. How do we bring forward underrepresented groups into the world of understanding different skills and learning them? And how do we actually reskill the workforces across our nation and many others where rope, you know, automation, as Colin said earlier, right, is going to be completely eliminated? I think we have the opportunity now to use AI to do that. Well, that, that's, that brings up a great perspective, you know, because 
we can actually use AI to bridge the gap and instead of allowing it to create a bigger divide to the gap. But I think one of the things that I'm hearing though is that AI, like all computer, you know, technology lacks compassion, it creates you know, innovation and creativity, which are very unique to humans. So the question is, it's like, are we really skilling the people up on the base, the new skill sets that they're going to need, which are those three, as opposed to the data crunching, you know, technology things that AI will now be taking over that you know, as important or required. So I think it's going to require people to be deliberate. So we talked about policy at the company level, but I think it's a much broader conversation. And, um, and tricky because we were talking about from an education perspective today, AI is something to be governed and monitored and limited to keep, right? The first use of a lot of new technologies is to cheat or get them out in the system. So, but we need people coming up to be exposed to it in a constructive way so that they can develop the skills of working with it before they get to us, right? Which can help with the divide of this institutionalized educational system instead of employers. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd love to get a show of hands from the, the team here. How many of you have ever felt like you didn't know how to ask the question in the chat right? <laughs> or did you got an answer that you kept on having to say again? <laughs> Try that again. Maybe less hyperbole and a little different, you know. It, it feels like you're almost like shooting at the door. Can you imagine if you're, okay, so we are collectively people that over 20 years experience. Yeah, we've elevated to executive level roles. So we've gotten to, you know, places in our career where we were very senior. And we are struggling with this. Can you imagine a person who might be, let's use a, a first-gen corporate person who has no experience with this and has no vocabulary and has no concept of how to ask the question? We're struggling. How, how much more would they potentially struggle? But to your point, the education you know, and the gap creation is how do you actually leverage and utilize the AI, but also how do you augment, uh, augment it? Laura, you have Well, I wanted to just note the word augmentation, which yeah. means supplement. So if we just think about that and marry it with, you know, what we're discussing, this is really a supplement. <laughs> no. It's like a vitamin. But to your point, is that it's something that you're the way that I look at it, what you're describing is like uh, I, I think of the uh, the um, was the office episode when Michael Scott is driving down the road and, and he gets the directions from his GPS system. Turn right. He's like, no, no, no. And, and, and I think Dwight in the car and Dwight said, no, no, no. There's a lake over there. And he goes, no, but the GPS knows it must know something that I don't. And he turns and drives straight into the lake. Right? Like, 
you have, I mean, it's an augmentation. You have to use your human intelligence to know there's a leg in front of you and your car probably should be going into that, right? And then I love that. I, I think that uh, it's, a, it's, it's a supplement. It also could, it also is a great equalizer if you think yes, about it. That's a great equalizer. Yeah. yeah. Levels of playing field. I mean, AI has the ability to be like a quasi utility, right? It can help in so many industries and help in so many ways. If we were being profit, not profit driven, and just benefit driven to society, the challenge is that's not the environment it's been dropped into, right? So um, the reality is I'm surprised I haven't seen more companies even doing like, you know, how we used to do code-a-thons or how can you come up with a new idea with, with this code and, and we'll pay you for whatever ideas and maybe just its raw form. But I get what you're trying to, you know, do. AI has that same um, opportunity where just release it, teach everyone, educate everyone on what it really can do and then release it to the wilds and say, who comes up with the best idea you get rewarded and of course companies and industries will be able to take advantage and so i think the folks who will win will be the folks who say this is not the boogeyman this is something that can really help you do things better but we are going to let anyone junior to senior who has the best ideas of how to optimize the use take advantage to the benefit of our company and so the folks who are more open-minded to how do we suss out the uh, the best ideas will win. And if we try to control it too much, and like, I think we had one of those conversations where you're talking about the 10%, um, we always have the best ideas because they always listen to each other's ideas. It, it, you can't win in that way because you're not incentivized to really dig into it and learn and figure out the ways. And you're not going to sit there for 20 hours like the kids on the, on the Fortnite playing 20 hours to become the best. That's the type of obsession you need to have with this to really kind of come up with the next best idea. So we should open up its borders especially at companies and, and give that opportunity. I love that. Wow. What a, I mean, the idea of use of Gen AI as a hackathon. Uh, I think, uh, Addison, we need to talk about that in our next <laughs> Run your business with people. <laughs> but uh, how fun is that? I mean, that is just exciting. So, uh, Amanda? Yeah, and I was just going to mention really quickly as we talk about decentralization of the workforce. I mean, I think that's a huge point, Right. If we actually allow all individual contributors, right, to engage, be incentivized, and be recognized, right, for what they're doing to in enable Gen AI into the workforce, into their skills development, into how they get productivity done for the organizations, we actually need to look at the new model of the leader that enables that and to break down the hierarchical structures that we know traditionally existed with an older mindset of command and control. We all know that's obsolete, uh, but it still exists, right? And the distributed model of leadership now will certainly emerge as probably more of a standard way of leadership development that didn't exist ever before. So it actually could also be an enabler for that, which is really going to be interesting to see. Now, that is an unpaid perfect pit. <laughs> So with that, I'm going to pivot into an example. Uh, so a case study for context, PwC has announced the rollout of generative AI to all of its employees. The firm is making a substantial investment to enhance its AI technology and capability 
which includes upskilling its entire U.S. workforce on Gen AI. And that means that the initiative as part of PwC's broader commitment to integrating AI into its services and empowering its employees with new technologies to drive innovation and efficiency. PwC's uh, strategy involves a phased rollout of private generative AI tool called Chat PwC. Starting with about 1,000 employees and planning to expand more broadly throughout the summer. The specific needs of the PwC operations, such as addressing complex acts and audit inquiries. It's limited at this point to help write documents and help answer audit questions, but I know that it actually short circuits a lot of those very difficult to find out and research audit questions for its employees. The goal is to eliminate administrative non-value tasks and also have employee gamifications. They've actually gamified the whole training to allow the employees to try and get to different levels of Gen AI expertise. The training for employees will vary based on roles and responsibilities with the goal of enhancing their understanding and effective use of AI in the workforce. PwC aims to empower its workforce to, uh, with the knowledge of generative AI, responsible, using it responsibly and effectively, to your point, recognizing the potential issues such as plagiarism and bias that can arise with AI technology. This move is reflective of a wider industry trend with major firms. So, the question is, what are the few unavoidable consequences and risks that we will have to mitigate that may come in as a result of an inevitable or broad rollout of Gen AI in the workplace? Tony? There you go. <laughs> No, I mean, listen, I think it's been a great discussion. You know, in many ways, sort of reflecting you know, a lot of the discussion around productivity, I don't get right? You know, and you can name the technology, whether it's internet, email, machine. Yeah, we've been, we've been debating this thing for years. And I think AI clearly had the ability to do that at a more significant level. But what obviously feels different. I'd say one is how it does affect, and we covered it, the employees' work, right? We can move non repetitive tasks. You didn't just save money by being more efficient, but that would change the employees' interaction with work. Yes. I think we didn't maybe get as much yet to those is you can break through the top of your license, right? You can go beyond it with AI to do things that normally you would not have trained to do. So I can code. Well, nobody knew that. I've never coded before in my life, but GPT now allows me to do that, right? So I can take an idea that I would have had that I would need to go find other people to, to develop. And I can fundamentally do things I was not able, nor was I actually kind of trained you know, to really accomplish, right? So I think first off for me is, is those last two things are what feel just fundamentally materially different. Now, PwC is a great example, right, as a professional services firm. I think it's a place you're seeing a lot in near-term activity pick up most significantly. You know, my last organization, uh, employees said, I, you, know, you have a consulting or strategic background. You teach me how to do that. You know, we set up trainings to really help employees just really identify how to frame a problem and put a plan together. Well, GPT allows them to do that now. 
So if you go to two examples for A, not only do their consultants need to remove tasks and create that, but ChatGPT gave my team the ability to do the PwC job, right, without needing to kind of go hire PwC. But what we were struggling candidly to kind of get to is something they hadn't really trained them ultimately to do that. I plot PwC example. Because I think the companies who can create the structure to systematically train employees, again, it's to get documentation, but you break through a barrier. And you know, we had employees just doing kind of different jobs that ChatGPT is able to do that they were supporting and training for. But I think it's a really good point, though, because the country, this country, I don't know, the rest of the world, hasn't kept up with the big switch that has. Um, left people behind in terms of skills already, right? Yes. So a generation ago, two generations ago, your ability to make a living and stay in a worthwhile job was not predicated on a college degree or advanced training. There will always be a swath of the workforce that will fit that definition, and yet the opportunities for them to have meaningful work that enables them to have a reasonable lifestyle and have some future have not kept up with the size of that population. And so frequently we talk about um, trends in the workforce and we're talking about the college-educated, white-collar professional group, which is not the majority of the workforce in this country. And we leave them behind. So we're going into this already with a deficit for most of our workers. So I think about CVS. 200,000 people in the store. So you take away the pharmacists who are highly educated and the medical nurse practitioners, it's 150,000 people. What, what's AI going to do for them, right? It's right. not enough to focus on what it's going to do for the HR people and the marketers and the account. What's it going to do for the people in the stores? What's it going to do for other people who have those really important jobs in the service economy, but they aren't the kind of jobs where you see an immediate application to AI that they're going to see as beneficial. They're going to see it as, my job's going to go away. So I hope as we do this, we don't make the same mistake we did over the last generation of leaving people behind because we haven't thought about the right way to bring them with the change. Yeah, I think that's a great point that was just made. And, um, I think it's ironic in my mind, that the upskilling to higher level work because Gen AI will take some of the more administrative work out. I think that training upskilling and the value that some of our hourly workers uh, and not as our folks will experience, that training will be Gen AI. <laughs> so even though Gen AI has taken away some of the work, the upskilling is going to use Jedi in the training tools to upskill them. So they're going to experience Jedi and not even know they're experiencing it. So um, it's just kind of interesting how I think that plays out. No, and, and that's a and that's a the whole idea, like you point earlier, the fast followers I'm, I'm listening to this. There's people who are who are the uh, who are the tip of the spear who are willing to take the risks. I think PWC is a good example. They're willing to take the risks that others are not. But at the same time, they have to be willing to take the failures mm-hmm. to deal with that risk that, uh, that others are not. And that, that creates opportunity, but also creates risk. You know? So that's good. 
Uh, so, so I think one of you talked about what are some of the things that are inevitable. I think it's inevitable that you're going to have the opposite of PwC. You're going to have the irresponsible actor, someone who deploys, who deploys and hands it out like Colin talked about without actually giving people the training that they need to use it the right way. So I think we will end up with a couple example, a sp couple spectacular examples of that. Uh, I, I think it's inevitable where people just go for the benefit without putting in the work to make sure it works properly. You look for all the upside to that without any of the downside, right? And Gloria, yeah. you speak over you, sorry. So access to information. Yes. And I'm acutely interested in the impact on the trades. Um, you know, non, you know, college um, bound individuals who would use AI as a way to really understand the nuances of what they're doing, whether it be in, you know, in the utilities, whether it's in HVAC or renewable energy or anything, but to be able to have information that others have, although they are in the careers and in the technical trades, being able to access that um, sort of at free will seems like it's, you know, a really powerful tool. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it has the potential to unlock. Yeah. You know, I, I think about the, you know, I think about this, you know, it's a silly example, but I was, uh, you know, I was a young kid, right? We didn't have much money. You know, I was in a little poor farm town in Ohio. I had literally one pair of jeans to my name in seventh grade. And my mom had a bookstore out, you know, on the side, attached to the side of our house just to try and earn additional money so that we could get by as a family. But I had this, uh, my brother worked for the telephone company. He got us a telephone pool that I could attach a basketball hoop in the <laughs> middle of our yard at the farm. But unfortunately, it was on a hill. So <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but as I was playing to this, to this telephone hoop basketball that was probably 11 foot, not 10 foot, <laughs> which was not standard, and had no net because we couldn't afford that, you know, it was just a hoop. I would play on there, and, and whenever people would drive up to the bookstore, I would play twice as hard. Because I was hoping that somebody would notice that I was just that good. <laughs> and I think about other people, these people, these jobs, just saying, I want somebody to actually notice that I'm that good. And I have this talent that I can give and I can contribute in a way that maybe, maybe they don't appreciate. Maybe what they're doing is they're, they're pigeonholing me into this job where all I'm doing is this mundane stuff, but I have so much more I can offer. I can offer creativity. I can offer innovation. And I can offer some, some other things. And so I think about that as what if ChatGPT could actually unlock some of those potentials in people? Yeah. So, so I'm not through it, but I started watching this movie, Gran Turismo, which is basically about this concept of, hey, they play video games of driving a you know really fast formula one race car but they've logged i mean thousands of hours and now someone said hey let's play a gimmick of the best um gamers you get to actually drive the car and see if you can do it in real life mm -hmm. and it, it panned out where this individual now look that individual might have uncanny 
physical skills that also make them good as gamers. But I think with ChatGPT and and, and, and and just AI in general, it's going to challenge us to think about how we view credentials, right? So you never went to this big school. You never get the opportunity. Like I, I got blessed that I was able to go to law school, but there's many folks I went, I, I debated on the way up where I was like, if they went to law school, they'd be the best litigator, right? But they just didn't go that route. So if you get access to this tool and you can code, like like Tony said, like, now I need to learn. You need to tell me, like, send me the, the questions <laughs> to ask. I need to learn about coding. But, like, if you get to do that and you're really good and you're able to deliver a product that's just as good as that software developer that you have in that role, and it's not like you don't need the software developer, but do you give that person that recognition and those future opportunities to do it again and another way to bring value? And I think, you know, look, as companies, we want people doing what they were hired to do. And there's a rare person who's able to show I can do something outside of my box. But I think ChatGPT and all these other tools are going to give them the opportunity to show it um, to the benefit of everyone. Like, again, it's about flexibility, open-mindedness. That's awesome. I, I think that it did allow some to expand outside their box and do things that maybe they couldn't have gotten afforded a 40-degree encoding, but they, uh, but they could figure out how to do that.